0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Robots, technology, jobs, and the economy. Add in a global pandemic, it means big changes in
1: the workforce that pandemic has increased by 28% the pace of automation. And things we never thought would switch earlier have been switched. But
0: just because something can be automated doesn't mean it should be.
1: What are the opportunities that this technology is bringing to the workplace? But what are also the challenges? To what extent is it disrupting the labor force?
0: David Brancaccio, the host of Marketplace Morning Report, is our guest today. He says people could be forced
1: to switch to completely new types of jobs. That's going to make some people mad. It's also going to make some people super happy because it's an enormous opportunity. Plus, which
0: jobs are the most robot-proof? I
2: cannot donate as much now as I could when I was working, but I still feel it's important to give what I can. I gave because I've lived in Colorado for five years now and I've listened to CPR almost every single day and I felt like it was time for me to finally step up and support all the wonderful programming. I value and trust this public resource. I have two children and I want it to continue well into their future.
0: Whatever your reason for giving, thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. The pandemic has brought on a wave of new workplace automation. There are more physical robots like the ones we imagined from the movie WALL-E.
1: Name? WALL-E. Wally.
0: There are also more software tools that automate tasks like Slack or Microsoft Teams. We're going to explore the evolution of robots and their effect on our daily lives, jobs and the economy. David Brancaccio, the host of Marketplace Morning Report from American Public Media, is my guest. We spoke at Denver Startup Week in front of a live audience. David, I was thinking about the first robot that I ever really got excited or engaged with. And it was this robotic dog. I think it was called Techno the Robotic Dog. And I was in elementary school, and it was able to, I think it was built as having 160 emotions, and you could teach it how to play fetch and you could teach it how to sit. It didn't come knowing those things. And something about the idea that. It had sensors and could engage with me it was so much more interesting than the woody pole string that like, could say there's a snake in my boot. So I'm I'm curious about robots and why we are so engaged with them and why they, they shape our lives so much. So before we talk about that, you've met a lot of robots.
1: I've met some robots uh, professionally, um, <laughs> did a couple of projects that I'll talk about that required me to spend time with robots, including at Carnegie Mellon, a snake robot that Crawls through sewers looking for problems, and um, it lashed around my lower leg up to my thigh and like started to crush it. It was a really intense uh, robot, but cool, uh, definitely cool. <laughs> um, the, that robot dog might have been a different s- a serial number. I had I might that might have been my one companion for my first trip across the country uh, for that project that we're going to talk about called Robots Ate My Job. The idea was, uh, I wanted to talk about automation in America. We tend to interact increasingly with machines, but did it get to the point, and I did this in 2012, where you could drive from the Atlantic to the Pacific, that's like a five, six-day journey, and never interact with a human? And we would use that to tie together a discussion of the bigger issue for my public radio listeners, which is, what are the opportunities that this, technology is bringing to the workplace but what are also the challenges to what extent is it disrupting the labor force and um so i got a car magazine to give me a much better car than i could ever get access to it wasn't robotic it was 12 2012 it had some minor robotic features it had adaptive cruise control back then and a few other things but um I brought the silver dog. Was your dog silver?
0: You know, I never actually got the dog. We got a real dog around that time. You you tell me how was the dog as a companion? I never found out. It's
1: still in the New York Bureau. I might ship it to you. You Put in some batteries. (laughs) You can finally my childhood dreams. Your childhood dreams can be fulfilled. Um, But first of all, I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad to be working with CPR. I'm so glad to be back in Denver. You're the first humans I have seen in 19 months. The New York Bureau where I have my broadcast studio for my show has been closed since March. Um, The thing is that these days we're trying to figure out like many businesses how we can reopen our facilities in our newsroom. Uh, CPR is more further down the curve than we are. So right now I go in a couple times a week to a completely empty studio and I'm like Matt Damon in the Martian. Um, And What are you growing? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And what am I fertilizing it with, right? But uh, here's the thing, and this is what ties my comment about where I'm doing my job right now with the robot trip. Right now, my audio technician is in Los Angeles, downtown. My director is in North Hollywood, California. My producer is in Astoria, Queens, New York. My reporter might be in Silver Spring, Maryland or Austin, Texas or Clovis, California, depending on the particular week. So the fact is, that is how we've been doing the show for years. Normally I have a producer with me and occasionally I see some of the reporters, but we have been distributed because technology allows this for many years. So when I went on this attempt to drive across the country to interrogate this notion of our robots, uh, we know robots are a disruptive force, but are they ultimately aggregate in the end an opportunity? or are we gonna run out of jobs? The question I put to myself and also some of the listeners are asking me, how alienating is it to cross the country where you can never see any people? You know, a lot of my interaction was with a Google map on the screen, not with people. There are certain things you can't do if you're behind the wheel with the vow not to meet a human. You can't have barbecue at rendezvous in Memphis. I was like right there, and I had vowed not to meet a person and they didn't have a vending machine. So I couldn't, so I ate that day on the banks of the Mississippi with the robot dog, a frozen pizza that I had bought with self-checkout cooked on the engine block of that car. It doesn't work as well as they say, by the way, it's a little limp this here pizza, but um, here was the thing, six days, it's as close as I'll ever get to an interplanetary type mission. Um, By the way, NASA uses psychological batteries of tests to figure out if crews will work together. The Russians have it, or it's more clever. They stick potential crews into a car and have them drive to Siberia. And if they don't murder each other, by the time they get there, they're like, okay, this is compatible. So being in the car can be an important way of galvanizing it, uh, like figuring out who you're dealing with. Driving alone for six days was like my normal day. I've been in training for this for years. How often do we really interact now? We're often texting anyway. We're often at the time Skype, now Zoom. Uh, Days go by without me seeing more than a person or two. And I don't know if that is how I wanna live my life in perpetuity, but in a weird way, it helped those of us who had occupations where we could socially distance, it helped prepare us for what happened during uh, technology was ready for many of us in that situation. Um, By the way, I blew it two and a half times on that journey.
0: What were the two times?
1: So the idea was to not interact with people. So number one lesson, if that's your goal, is don't travel with a cute robot dog. (laughs) Everyone wants to talk to you. So what you need to really do is not have a cute robot dog, have a baseball cap on and put in earbuds and look down. No one will talk to you. I didn't have the heart. So people wanted to talk to me, but I sort of moved on, but, um, pulling into, Oh, in Roanoke, Virginia, I went to get the food at a grocery and I was going to do the self checkout never have an economic interaction with a human. And, uh, Self-checkouts, you've done them. They're impossible to do just by yourself. The machines never work. The bananas wouldn't scan. There was a helpful person who wanted to help me. And this a really funny video because I was recording video of me running away from the person trying to help me. So I escaped that one, but then I rolled into uh, Albuquerque. No, it was somewhere in Oklahoma at midnight. And I picked hotels where you could swipe to get in. There were robot check-in clerks. And the night manager had spotted my name in the computer and was a listener and just wanted to meet me. And I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm sorry, I'm not talking to the little people today. I mean, come on. So I declared that on the air. And the other place where I didn't blow it with people, but I blew it with technology, I had produced this. Look, I was the person figuring out the journalism of this, not just narrating it, which in television, it's often the haircut with a real journalist doing all the hard work. Um, but in this case, I was setting it up and I had easy pass from back east for the bridges and I got all the way across the country and I was 35 minutes from the goal, which was Ocean Beach in San Francisco, had to get there for sundown because otherwise I wouldn't get good video. The Bay Bridge is not easy pass. So I ran the toll. It's on tape. And some listener wrote saying, that's just cheating. That's like your, your, your strategy for getting food was to climb in a window and steal it. And fair enough. Uh, fair enough. But in the end, um, I had to get there for um, bad planning on my part. But the fuel for that journey that led to what you might consider people in the room here for uh, Startup Denver might find more useful for your thinking is the follow-up journey that I did. That was not called Robots Ate My Job. That was called Robot Proof Jobs. And, you know, every... If you talk to most, many mainstream economists for many years, they would say, yeah, I know, technology is disruptive, but in the end, more and better jobs accrue. Technology destroyed 98% of agriculture jobs in America, but those were backbreaking jobs in the sun and dangerous. And ultimately you had the industrial revolution where people had hard jobs, but not as hard as agriculture. And productivity was increased by the technology and society had benefits. So what economists tend to tell you is stop worrying about the robots. And by robots, I don't just mean robots like our dog. I also mean automation. I'm talking about software. I'm talking about digitization. What got my attention was some work out of MIT, among other places, that showed that there's a possibility, there's a scenario, not necessarily our definite destiny, that ultimately fewer jobs are created in the future to make up for the ones that are lost. And nobody, nobody I talked to ever made the case that it's not highly disruptive. The following few decades with enormous turnover of jobs, in part because of technology and accelerated by pandemic, you and I should talk about that, will force many more people to change not jobs, which will always happen, but to change occupations. And that's going to make some people mad. It's also going to make some people super happy because it's an enormous opportunity. And the people in this room thinking about technology and actual technologists have an enormous opportunity here, but it's also something our, we have to think about as citizens and people have to think about as who are interested in public policy because a mad angry population because of all the uh, disruption is not a happy place. And it, it can alter our politics in destructive ways. So I've been doing a lot of thinking about that.
0: Automation has been with us. It's not new. We've learned to use washing machines and dishwashers, and that completely changed the way the access to the workforce for many people. I'm curious about what's different about robots and automation now that's so much more disruptive than they were
1: 100 years ago, say. It's a great question. Um, By the way, just a side note on washers and dryers, when they were introduced, they were going to liberate in that society, the housewife, because you wouldn't have all this drudgery. All that happened is that people's requirements for clean clothes went up. And if you should look at those studies. It, now we, want, we can never wear something twice and it didn't help that much. Um, it helps some, I mean, for heaven's sakes. Who here has used a mangle, the device to squeeze the
0: We don't have wash day
1: anymore. <laughs> we don't have wash day anymore. Um, what's different now is, a bunch of things, including the pace of technological innovation is way faster than we thought it would be. Uh, The technology can do stuff we never thought it could do, and it can also take over tasks we never thought was possible. We used to think that the manual labor job, the ones most vulnerable to technology, what some really interesting research by McKinsey Global Institute, which is a side institute, it's not the consulting firm per se, but it's allied with it, we relied a lot on the research for some of our reporting. They think that, what was the percentage? Half of everything everybody does is potentially automatable. And that figure would not have been that high five years ago and 10 years ago. Um, It represents they found $16 trillion in wages. And don't miss the point that it's not like just a certain occupation is gonna disappear. And if you don't have the cursed occupation, you're okay. It's bits and pieces of all of us are automatable. A really important question to ask though, and the McKinsey people do this, I'm grabbing, r- grabbing my phone to, to do something. An important point is that we, automatable doesn't mean it will be automated. Uh, it may be too expensive or just silly, or not socially acceptable. There is um, a study of the legal system. Judges in happen to be in Israel, and they found that judges' decisions are greatly influenced by time of day and how close they are to having had a meal or if they're getting hangry. Their sentences are tougher when they're hungry. So that means human judges, in a sense, are are very fallible. And there is some AI that has shown in a test in Europe that's been pretty effective at predicting. It looked at retrospectively at cases. The AI looked about, looked, about, tried to come up with what its judgment would be. And it's not perfect, but it's spookily not bad at coming up with the same kind of thing. So let's say we'll turn judges into uh, software. That's gonna be a long road to sell to human beings. Right, that's not the first place they're going to automate. So there's there's all those things holding automation back. But then came pandemic. And if my reporting robots ate my job, and then five years later, robot proof jobs, and we should talk about the proof ones, that predated pandemic. But the latest models that smart people are trying to use to think about some of these things finds that pandemic has increased by 28% the pace of automation and things we never thought would switch earlier have been switched because of the new factor placed in there of we're not so sure we want people face-to-face as often in certain occupations. So there's now a premium on technology. This famous economist out of MIT, Duran Asimoglu, he says, among many other things that recessions always bring about a burst in turning to technology by business. And it sticks, it sticks. So you can take that notion of if you enter hard, hard times, and that there's a greater push to technology, a greater push toward you being able to get the market to accept what it is people in this room are trying to place in the market. Um, The pandemic is going to be that on steroids. So Major disruption, but again, there are plenty of scenarios that in the end we end up with better jobs that are more productive. We couldn't figure out why technology wasn't increasing our productivity for all these years. It was the weird mi- mystery that was happening. And we kept reporting on it. And I would call famous economists and they would go, The Italians have this uh shrug. It's like goes like this. Bleh. And it means I don't know. And I'd say, how come productivity isn't going up? We're all buying computers and we got the internet. Bleh. Uh, Now it's happening. Productivity is going up. Um, So it's starting to take hold. But robot proof jobs is an interesting question. It's not often what you think. It turns out, Avery and I were talking, tree pruner is pretty resistant. Although there is a startup here in Denver (laughs) that does electrified care of greenery, I noticed, which is cool. But I assume it's the more regular landscape. But trees are custom. That's why we love our trees and they're funky. And apparently it was, it's been judged by people smarter than me that that's not gonna be the first place that automation is gonna come. But all right, how about the poor person who spent all those years going through college, into medical school, residency to be a radiologist? That's vulnerable. It doesn't mean there's not going to be any radiologists in this world. There'll be some very happy radiologists because using technology, they're going to be really productive. But the number of radiologists is going to go down because the machines will be able to go through more routine cases, pathologists and stuff, same kind of thing. So, stuff where people got some pretty good invested in what should be highly compensated, skilled work may find that those are not necessarily the jobs of the future. I'm lucky that I'm in one of these places that uh, there ain't gonna be any nasty robots taking my job, except, hey Siri, what's the Dow Jones Industrial Average? Dow Jones Industrial Average was
0: up 0.98% today, trading at (laughs) 34,754.
1: That's not my job, but it's a piece of my job. There are people, I don't know if there's anybody in the room who. Come for the silly stock market indicators to know if the world has come to an end and stay for the workplace culture and innovation stories that hopefully we're doing. But there is an AI that's been writing corporate earnings narratives in Forbes magazine, Forbes, I think it is, for years now with a company called Narrative Sciences. It's not bad. I mean, you always would have given the that unless it was like Enron going down the tubes 20 years ago. You gave that to grown-up reporters. But it would be the entry-level people writing their earnings, the meat and potato stuff. And this thing does an okay thing. Sports reporting, high school level, great sports reporting is nothing that a robot could do. But run-of-the-mill stuff, uh, this, uh, Tampa Papers had an AI doing police blotter coverage for 15 years. So... 800 occupations were classified by the McKinsey people as to automatable potential. And, and yeah, you know, there's some ones that are just clear and we featured them in some of our reporting. And since we did it, I haven't seen another one a toll booth person. I mean, it's just, we talked to some toll booth people. I mean, it's gotta be the worst job in the world, but the fact is when I talked to people at the Jersey Turnpike and where was it in Ohio, they were just taking out the human toll booths when we were in Ohio. Um, some people whose lives are not defined by their work, who define their lives in a different way, caregiver for another relative or they're an artist, but they needed work that just brought in some money and had some benefits. They were sad that that job is going away to technology on the outside, looking in, you're like, it's gotta be the worst job, especially during COVID people breathing on you and you're giving them change, but it's not for often us to say, but. What is the least robotizable, safest, robot-proof job in America? And I've been waiting to tell you this. That's why I came <laughs> out here, uh, given what the, what the prompt is, Startup Denver. A very non-robotizable job is CEO. And McKinsey found that, a leader. But I would prefer, and this is what we identified on the air, entrepreneur is not automatable because you're looking for corners in the market that are not fulfilled by the paradigms that we're thinking. And the way that a AI would work is you would give it a paradigm. And so, I, and so, and also entrepreneurs are agile. And I think, and so we talk to entrepreneurs as part of the series. It's just, you can just rest assured a robot will not do that sort of work because it's highly creative. You're like composers in the business world in a sense. And that is, by the way, another area that's pretty that, that McKinsey identified. Composers is pretty safe, um, and we talked to an electronic music composer at Oberlin College for the series. And I asked him, "Yeah, but you're training students to do to be composers. Um, what? How many jobs are there?" And he said, "With technology, way more, because a lot of the multimedia, the explosion of multimedia now requires music." I said, but computers can compose. You know, I played some, and and uh, and he said, and listen to it. It's awful. <laughs> it was awful. Um, there's AI that write that wrote a short story and wrote a play. It's cute. It's not. They performed it, and it was sort of like maybe it was Dadaist, weird, uh, surrealist, wackiness. But it's not something you're going to pay big ticket. It's not. It wasn't Hamilton, was it? Um, And then, to really bring it home, hopefully for you, of entrepreneurs, what are the sort of entrepreneurs, I was trying to pick one that would really be emblematic of robot proof, and that would be a robot entrepreneur, uh, (laughs) a person who develops robots. And so I was looking at the list of of startups just in this area, and it's a giant list, and I can't possibly name them all, you wouldn't want me to, but what a hotbed you have here, Ag Robots Tortuga does agricultural robots, pattern labs, does customized robots, scythe robots. It sounds a little scary. Um, I don't want a robot with a large curved blade, but Scythe robotics is electric is, um, is the one that does the green spaces watchtower robotics does safer water systems robots. This might be those robots that of the sort I saw that could, uh, examine infrastructure. It goes on. Um, there's even a Sphero apparently does robotics that have humanity and personality. I could use a little more of that in my newsroom. Um, but it's, um, you're involved in a creative field. You're like poets, but using a different sort of canvas, which is um, taking lots of information and, cr- and helping people see the world in a different way the way you do to meet a need that is unmet. Um, And that's the, you know, I get the most energy from designers and entrepreneurs when I can actually meet human beings. Graphic designers are, uh, that's a different conference that we can do sometime, but uh, some enlightened companies invite designers to have a seat on the board because of their superpower to um, look at the world in a different place and communicate in a different way. Um, but entrepreneurs share that in a way.
0: David Brancaccio hosts the Marketplace Morning Report from American Public Media. He joined me for Denver's Startup Week to talk about technology and jobs. After the break, how the pandemic has changed automation, which jobs have changed the most and gender disparities. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
3: In southwest Colorado in the 1880s, Animas City expected big things. Railroads were expanding deeper into the state, and the Denver and Rio Grande was coming. But it stopped a couple of miles south of Animas City and built a depot, and the new town of Durango. Early rail lines laid through the mountains were narrow gauge, three feet apart, and could, folks said, curve on the brim of a sombrero. This kind of flexibility would be necessary to get to the riches of Silverton, the main reason the DNRG was coming. Over eight months in the winter and spring of 1881 and two, crews laid track up the Animus River, blasting rock and building bridges. By summer, the first steam train departed for Silverton from Durango, rolling right past Animus City. Animus City dissolved into Durango in the 1940s, but the train to Silverton is still on the track hauling thousands of tourists every year. A Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio.
0: Robots, technology, jobs, and the economy, add in a global pandemic, it means big changes in the workforce for people in all kinds of jobs, including entrepreneurs and innovators. We're getting perspective from David Brancaccio, host of the Marketplace Morning Report. He joined me recently with a live audience at Denver Startup Week. Tell me about what you found in the ways that automation has changed since the pandemic, and specifically the kinds of jobs that have changed the most that maybe we wouldn't have seen changing so quickly or in that direction.
1: I'm so hoping you're going to ask me something like that. And we didn't rig all this up in advance, uh, <laughs> we talked casually about what we would talk about. Um, I've looked at the figures, and um, in 2020, the first pandemic year, um, million new enterprises were started in America, and that's uh, up 24% from 2019. So cynics among you are like, well, sole proprietorships, nothing wrong with that, but that's not gonna be a great engine of of employment. The Census Bureau later came out with data that showed that, um, how many percentage? I think it was 16% of the new startups in 2020 are uh, in a category of likely to employ people. And so that's, you know, uh, there's nothing wrong with being a sole proprietor. I am one, I have a company. But, um, But if you're thinking about jobs of the future that will build on themselves, it's these other companies. And that's a lot of people who were able to be lucky enough to save a little bit because of how the pandemic, its effects were distributed so unequally, took the opportunity to try to start uh, enterprises. And it's really interesting to see of those entrepreneurs, when you look at breakdowns by race, a lot of people of color started businesses in the first pandemic year. Um, And that has the potential for some social change. But Avery and I were shocked when we shared an article about your question. Um, the research was done for the National Bureau of Economic Research. It happens to be done out of Canada, but it's about the U.S. It took a look at occupations across America that were vulnerable to you getting COVID. And you know which ones some of those are, right? Retail was medium risk. Uh, working in a factory with uh, that processes meat is very high risk. Dental hygienist is a nightmare, really is, uh, on that point. So they said, OK, what's vulnerable? And then they mapped it across what's automatable. So what's got the double whammy of vulnerability? And they did it by like county. Coloradans, the overall risk of the double whammy is not that high in Colorado. There are hot spots for being where industries are centered where COVID risk is higher, but the automatable jobs, it's not that much of a hotbed for that. Part of it is the knowledge economy that you developed here which is nice that it's robust like this. But where we were talking, that it just, I wanted you to know this, it stopped me on my tracks and it ignited some really uh, a conversation in our newsroom about coverage, um, there's a huge, it's hugely gendered. Uh, the most vulnerable jobs, uh, double the amount of vulnerable jobs are, uh, uh, are held by people, women. Now, because women have a lot of those low wage jobs in which they're, they're connected to people that, could, that also have a routine that could be automatable. And if you're thinking about issues of equity, it's something that you really have to absorb. Um, I will tell you that in a lot of the country and certainly it was the case in Colorado, that this effect is for people who don't have college degrees. If you have less than a college degree that's where you see this for people with bas the gender disparity disappears there isn't a gender disparity in the double whammy vulnerability automation and COVID. Um, and uh in colorado you just like for people with college educations but isn't that the problem with america is that we and it's certainly the problem with pandemic has been it's distributed so unequally so most robot proof job entrepreneur, better still, I would say robot entrepreneur. So I had talked to a robot, budding robot entrepreneur who became an entrepreneur in the original series in 2012. He was a graduate student at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. When I caught up with him five years later, he had a robot company. He had start, he'd done a startup and he had employees. And it's called Heavy Robotics in Pittsburgh, H-E-B-I. And so I uh, contacted him the other night and I said, I'm going to Denver. And we were talking to people who are really engaged in um, thinking about entrepreneurship. How's it been going? And it would be cooler if he was here. And we were doing, Avery was doing the interview with Dave Rawlinson, young, aggressive entrepreneur. Uh, what he does is modular robotic actuators so that you can kind of build a robot from his parts that do what you want it to do as opposed to leafing through a catalog to find something that's already dedicated to what you wanted to do. And um, it's like Lego Mindstorms, but industrial. Last year was really hard, but with the PPP loans, he didn't lay off anybody, but it took the government intervention. He's grateful for those. Now, and, and it was hard, but they came out the other side. They're flush enough that they're opening a new headquarters in the coming weeks. He's hired two more engineers. It's probably a company that's got about 15 engineers, something like that. What's his problem now? It's your problem too. Um, One part of it is pandemic. The pandemic distortions in the supply chain are um, nightmarish, but it's also an opportunity. And that's why it was so um, important that I talked to him knowing I was going to meet you. There is all this thinking about unglobalization right now and as entrepreneurs here in the heartland you're uniquely positioned to meet needs without when people deal with you they're not dealing with far away places but they're also seeking cre- uh, the ability to do industrial processes that allow for creative solutions when other bits of the supply chain fall through. He said uh, pandemic distortions generally for his business are it's weird, but he used the word bonkers if it's connected to semiconductor stuff. It's just out of control. you just don't know when you get the stuff. So his customers are looking for ways that they can have you know he, he thinks he's in a, a strong position with this modular approach so that if this piece of the, of the assembly line breaks down and a part's not coming for nine months, Back order from hell. You know, Americans are really good at freestyling interesting approaches to problems. There's a study by um, the people who do the the World Economic Forum, the people who do Davos, Switzerland, that gathering at the ski resort, in which the great and the good all show up every uh, February. It is right. I think it's February, not January. And um, in the couple years leading up into pandemic, from 2014 to 2019, 55 percent. Of businesses that they rigorously polled said that they were going to be investing in the coming years in new technology to speed up their processes and, and automation. And when they asked recently, it's 75%. Now you're like, how could anyone have answered no before pandemic? But the fact is a lot of businesses did say, well, we've got the computers we need, and we'll upgrade to Windows 11 when that happens. But they weren't thinking bigger And with pandemic, it's like everywhere. And so you're going to see this big surge. So as engaged members of society, in addition to being people who are thinking about their good ideas to make the society better through your own enterprises, this is a big conversation that we need to be having about how we're going to reskill people and upskill people for these jobs, because they're going to be mad if they're sitting around. When we did robot proof jobs, we also talked about ways of mitigating the effects of the disruption. And there was this crazy, wild fringe idea that we engaged. I would talk to audiences about it, and they're like, "That's science fiction! Universal basic income, where you just hand money out to people." And pandemic came, and we had one. We we had one. We handed money out to people, and it kind of worked. Like wild stuff. So the series we did last summer, locked down for public radio. Was reimagining the economy, which is we saw that the pandemic was widening the range of public policy options. Things that were off the table were now not so wacky. And so, what are people, well, what are some of those ideas? And we, um, we shared some of them. Um, these would be structural changes to the economy. And it's always a mystery to me, you know, we are the most entrepreneurial country. Um, Sweden, you'd think they'd be pretty entrepreneurial. It was so unentrepreneurial that they brought in the king of Sweden to pitch the idea of it's okay to be an entrepreneur. And I was reading an article about this. The deal was this. With entrepreneurship means failure too, right? A lot of stuff doesn't work. In Sweden, apparently, if you had an enterprise that went belly up, you are done. You were not marriageable. You would... You could not find a mate. Her family or his family would ostracize you. It was a cultural problem. Now in Silicon Valley, right? You're not in and in entrepreneurial circles like this, you know, you may need, may, may need to make your bones by failing a few times. Um, it's part of the disrupt, you know, the creative destruction that you engage in. But um, one barrier to this is healthcare reform. Imagine the absolute cascade of people who would want to try stuff if it wasn't for being stuck at the job for the benefits. And it's odd that we have this duality in America. A lot of entrepreneurship and willingness to try some of this. It's also geographical, I forgot to mention this, geographical, Um, Rilof Bota, the South African venture capitalist who's in Silicon Valley now. He was in early with Instagram and YouTube. He says he's been giving money to many more startups outside Silicon Valley since pandemic. He hasn't given up on Silicon Valley, but that the remote thinking that's gone in, that, that it's been our response, that place doesn't matter. What some, well, um, uh, a woman who was a writer for The Economist magazine wrote a book a thousand years ago called The Death of Distance finally happened.
0: David Broncaccio is the host of the Marketplace Morning Report from American Public Media. We've been talking about how robots and automation are shaking up people's jobs and the economy, especially during the pandemic. We spoke at Denver Startup Week and folks in the audience had questions. My name's Linda Klein and I was wondering, what do you uh, know about the future of elder care and robots? My husband and I don't have kids and we're sort of uh, maybe banking on a little bit of care from robots.
2: Have, have yeah. is that is, is that misguided?
1: I'm so glad that's the greatest question because there's three part thing that I want that it raises. Let me be brief about all. So the Japanese have been really focused on this because of their aging population for decades. And so the humanoid robots are coming out of Japan in part to deal with this. Um, We all in this room know about the uncanny valley. When you make a humanoid robot look too close to human, it gets creepy. There's that issue. But um, one of the most robot proof human occupations that they still think will be um, a lot of opportunities for people is in caregiving, but there's a disconnect with how much those workers get paid, and that's a giant thing going on in the economy now, which is crucial work we desperately need people to do, is hard and not remunerated well. So is technology going to come to the rescue? What I'm, what you're probably worried about while you ask the question is this. The other thing that the um, heavy robotics guy, Dave Rawlinson, that I talked to the other night in preparation for seeing you, said to me, the non-pandemic effect he's seeing is there has been a reappraisal recently in how fast some of this really exotic technology is moving. He expressed it in terms of self-driving cars. We're going to have really cool cars that are safer and on major highways do a lot of the driving. But the idea that, All these taxis in urban areas are going to be no person in them. We're reappraising that right now. Still a huge opportunity for people feeding that market. It's really interesting work. And then one wonders if in caregiving, uh, how far we can go with this. I did an event uh, with the makers of a movie. Maybe you saw it. It's with Frank Langella, and it's in the slightly not distant future, like a couple years ahead, um, where there's a older gentleman played by Frank Langella who doesn't have immediate family around and he's given a caregiver robot and he bonds with it too tightly to the, to the, with the possibility that he's excluding uh, human uh, interactions. By the way, I've done some speaking about ethics and technology and thought some about it. I'm not an expert. Um, a little creepy, but just thought I'd put it on the table. An ethical issue is, do you want companion robots where there's gratification involved, he said, knowing we're live here? What if people are encouraged to fall in love with the machine, is that right? Um, But part three of what you raised, I haven't fully answered it, it's gonna be a solution because it's a huge need, is What is going to propel automation and enormous advances and investment in the field that may mean, in fact, more and richer jobs are created rather than are destroyed. Versus are destroyed, are demographics. We're aging as a population. There is not enough people to do the work that's needed. It's possible that um, I've seen rigorous estimates that just because working people won't be able will still be alive and thriving but not working, that it's going to take every erg of human work potential to meet those needs by the people who aren't that age. So it may be the demographics is solving some of this problem, but there's a huge need. And in places like Germany, where the population is aging much more than here, and then different conference, we can do this, I'll come back. Think about the personal finance issue here, when you don't have enough people working and paying taxes to support those of us who've gone gray, the economics of the way we do retirement get out of whack.
2: Hi, I'm Lydia McMahon. So I do Workforce of the Future as a job. And I think you kind of touched on reskilling, but the two barriers I see is individual motivation and academic partners. There's really not a lot of part-time programs for people to go to when they have a full-time job. And there, it's a little hard to convince people that things are changing sometimes when they're, you know, busy taking care of families and working and they really don't feel like they have space to take on school. So I wonder what your research and reporting has found.
1: Some of the problem of people being unwilling is a sense of betrayal from what's happened in the past. We have talked to people from my reporting who got reskilled. They were, worked in a machine shop, And then they entered a program that wasn't all that long, but still required time, which is the most precious resource. And then what they learned was already obsolete when they were done. So we have to demonstrate to people that it's apt type. Uh, They're getting the skills of the things of the future. It's a real moment in which people are saying to themselves, the pandemic has forced them into this uh, mindset where they're, they're less willing to do crappy jobs, drudge work, Service sector, dangerous, unappreciated jobs for low pay. There are alternatives that pay a little more that are remote jobs. Uh, Insurance company that will let you process some of their data without you getting in the way of COVID or just bosses being mean to you. And so there's competition. So people are rethinking. And so in that case, they may also be thinking, what do I do want to be doing? And and, And how should I get the chops necessary to do this? But I saw that in Australia, in the state of New South Wales, they had done a rigorous analysis of what are going to be the big jobs in their area 20 years from now. And coming here, I was like, gee, I should find out if Denver has done that. Have they? There was a
2: future proof report that came out maybe like three years ago, and it really focused on more of the human skills like communication creativity some of the things you were talking about and then digital fluency data literacy things like that so not specific jobs that's really but good for skills. like school
1: kids because you want to know the generic skills because the some of the jobs of the future have not been invented right right but michigan has tried to figure out near term next 10 years kind of thing and then link the info with community colleges and trade schools so that you don't go in and, and, and get some wacky training in something that won't be useful. Um, I don't know how fully effective it is, but the, I think the intention is really good.
0: Yes, hi, my name is Kevin Cheek. I'm wondering about the mismatch of people with skills looking for jobs and people needing to hire people. It's very hard for a lot of companies, restaurants, bars, et cetera, right now to staff up. I do know there are young people with college degrees and good skills that are having trouble finding jobs. How do you think that's one, the result of the pandemic, of course, and uh, the increase in innovation and automation, how is that going to play out and how does that provide opportunities for everyone in this room?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, uh, it is something that we're interrogating daily now, this weird moment, but Food service is an enormous opportunity. Uh, there's going to be, like at the airport, the touchscreens, and food prep. I talked to a restaurateur in um, New York who had a not super high-end restaurant, but a nice restaurant, and he thinks that that category of not fast, fast casual Chipotle, but not super fancy pants 57th street stratospheric stuff he thinks the whole classes of those restaurants are going out of business because if you want to deal ethically with your employees pay them reasonably enough to attract them also give them not overburden them with 60 hour weeks diners haven't figured out the fact that they're going to need to pay more for that yet and that there's going to be a lot of disruption but it is True that we're still hearing people are like I can't find jobs, and I don't know if it's that people have fantasy jobs like the greatest job in the world they're holding out for. Um, it seems like there's a lot of interesting jobs that are there for the taking, um, and that old arguments about there's nothing out there. This is not the moment we're seeing this, but that's 75% of business executives who are in position to make the decisions about investment in technology, saying they are going to bring on more technology in the coming few years is crazy opportunity for people in the room.
0: Thank you all so much for being here, David. Thank you for sharing. Of course,
1: my pleasure. Great meeting everybody.
0: David Broncaccio hosts the Marketplace Morning Report from American Public Media. He joined me at Denver Startup Week to talk about robots, the evolution of automation, and what it means in the workplace. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.